Welcome to Jersey Justice, a civil law podcast that shares practical tips and stories about personal and workplace injuries. Join two of the brightest New Jersey injury attorneys, Gerald Clark and Mark Morris of Clark Law Firm, as they take you behind the scenes of justice and civil law. But first, a quick disclaimer. The information shared on this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing on this site should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create and does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Jersey Justice. And today we're going to be talking about the deep scars of not just being injured physically, but the psychological scars that come along with being injured. So welcome back, Jerry and Mark. You guys had a great weekend, I suppose. The weather's been the last couple of days in New Jersey by the Jersey Shore has been better. You know, I, we're, I, I don't think we're supposed to talk politics on this on this podcast, but one it's can't help. Show. It. It's your show. You're allowed to talk right. about whatever you want. OK, well, global warming's a hoax, right? You know, just kidding. But it's been really hot around the world and including in New Jersey, climate change, whatever. But the last couple of days, it's been more fall-like here in this part of the world, which is like less humidity, not as hot, but it's been, it's been beautiful the last couple of days. That's so good. That's for the weather. And again, I, I think it, maybe it's a fine line between talking politics and talking science, <laughs> but the hottest rely on record since they've been keeping track of that thing. So yeah, I agree. It, I've been talking a lot with like friends and family things. I can't remember summers like this where you're just stepping out into an oven but jerry's right nice breeze yesterday i saw a leaf come down this morning got excited they get big false right for aaron Rodgers on the jets mark mark's a big aaron Rodgers fan i'm a big green bay packers fan. and now that aaron Rodgers is no longer on the green bay packers i wish him well but uh, oh okay all right all right no i it's funny I, the same thing i guess we'll talk politics we'll talk sports a little bit i was a a diehard Brett Green Bay Packers fan growing up my whole life. Brett Favre was their quarterback. He's this iconic player. And he followed the exact same path that Rodgers is. He was there for, I think he was a starter for 15 years, got traded to the Jets. And Rodgers, same deal. Starter, 15 years, gets traded to the Jets. And there's like a split between the fan base. Like, Brett Favre or Green Bay Packers. And I'm like, same thing. I'm like, I'm a Packers fan. I'm not a you know individual fan you know that the teams the collective is is more important than the than the individual to me so i wish him well not too well the worse he does the higher draft pick we get but he's got to start 65 percent of the the snaps that's part of the trade so i will probably try and go to a jets game though yeah i'm looking forward to it i want to see it's gonna be yes yeah it's gonna be entertaining it's good for new york sports it's a huge market it's good for him i I wish i think He's probably still got something left in the tank. I don't know how much Brett Favre have left, had left when he went to the Jets, but I don't know. I feel nah, like Aaron Rodgers has a little more left. Brett Favre had a couple, a couple poorly, poorly taken photographs left in him when he went to the Jets. And then yeah. Rodgers, I think, has another probably two years of pretty good football. We'll see. Were you guys competitive when you were in school? Com- competitive, you mean? Yeah, because we're talking to lawyers here, you know, so I'm just curious. Yeah. I. It's something I feel like I've had to try and turn off in aspects of, of my life because 
every case you you literally have an adversary like you're fighting against someone in pretty much every single case so my like competitiveness used to come out and like pick up basketball or like whatever and now it's the last the last thing i want to do a lot of times is like compete with somebody because i'm like i literally feel like i do that for a living like i still enjoy doing things like that but i can remember like throwing a basketball because you know my teammate on two verse two was not good and was trying to like dribble behind his back and lose the ball and yeah i've been known to be a little competitive i guess over the years jerry kind of what would you say i was never competitive in school definitely not in grammar school i wasn't a big fan of school growing up and i also was not competitive in high school yeah nor college maybe law school though but yeah yeah with school no i always wanted to do well but i was like i'm kind of good at english well not kind of i was good at english and history i wasn't good at math and i was okay at science and i was like all right i like history i like english science is okay and it's not like i was like i gotta do better than this guy next to me get a higher grade than him i never felt like that with with school well, thank you guys for sharing that. And I wanted to go to law school, but I didn't want to study for three years. So now I live vicariously through working with lawyers, which is fun. So let's get down to business, you guys. Today, we're going to be talking about the psychological ramifications of injuries because it's more than just physical. And a lot of times that has to be factored into a case as well. What can you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you a story about a case that I was on today. We had a deposition. So there was a project where a house was being built and the general contractor in New Jersey has a responsibility to manage safety on the project. And there's federal safety rules called OSHA that apply to all construction projects. And the general contractor is required to enforce those rules to make sure the workers on the job aren't hurt, even if they're not their direct employees. If they're subcontractor employees on the job, the general contractor is supposed to make sure that the safety rules are being followed so the workers aren't, aren't needlessly injured. So anyway, on this case, the siding installers, and, th- and these are untrained, you know, these, these workers had no safety training. Their boss had no safety training to speak of. They were installing siding on a house and they finished the backside of the house. And the way it's done is with scaffolding. So they have these two long poles on the side of the house and then like a ladder or step areas across the thing. And then they crank it up as they go up. And the house was really close to the property line, but I think it was about 10 feet from the house that was being built. There was high, high tension, like electrical lines distribution lines for the utility company there. And as they finished the the back of the house, they had to move the scaffolding to the side of the house. So they undid the scaffolding pole, which is attached with two attachment points to the roof of the house. And then the scaffolding sits on the ground and one worker attached it at the top and two workers were holding the pole at the bottom. And as they untached it, the wind blew and blew the scaffolding pole into those power lines. And a charge went down the line and killed one of the workers, actually killed both of the workers. One died like that day, and then the other worker died like a month or so later. So what happened was that whole scenario violated OSHA safety rules. The workers weren't trained, and there's specific OSHA rules dealing with scaffolding that are in place to make sure that 
that workers aren't electrocuted in this manner. And there's a whole bunch of, you know, rules in place, how far it has. And the workers have to have training about that. And the general contractor's supposed to make sure the line isn't too close. And then if it is, they're supposed to call the power company to have the line shut off during the construction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this whole thing happens. The worker dies. Other worker dies a month later. OSHA comes out. They, they issue fines. The police are there. The ambulance is gone. And the general contractor knows about it, obviously, what happened, and everyone's upset. Okay. So what went wrong here was they didn't have the power shut off to those lines while the work was ongoing, while that, because they, they got within 10 feet of the lines, and you can't get within 10 feet of the lines. So after all this happens, two days later, now, now I said, there's two poles that attach to the roof. And the one pole was taken down, which killed the workers, and the other pole was still up. So two days later, after this all happens, the general contractor still does nothing about safety, still has no conversations with his contractors about safety, still doesn't do anything about safety, and goes and has the surviving workers remove the second scaffolding pole the exact same way two days later that killed those two workers two days earlier. So I don't know how much that's related to, to emotional harm, but this all just came out today at a deposition we had because we represent the two, we represent one of the workers in the case. Well, for the family, there's a lot of emotional, I mean, the, the yeah. people are, are deceased now, so they, I mean, they, they can't speak about their emotional harm, but for the family, that's major emotional harm, I would say. Yeah, which is crazy in New Jersey, because if you think about the harm like a surviving child has for losing a parent or a sibling or a parent losing a child, or you actually can't collect for the emotional harm, which seems really unfair in New Jersey. Juries are instructed. I know it's upsetting, but you can't give any compensation for that emotional harm in this situation. So is that a New Jersey thing? Are you saying in other states that people can? It it's, very uh, yeah, you, you can in other states. Yeah, you can, you can collect the emotional harm for the loss. But in New Jersey, there's a law called the Wrongful Death Act, which specifically says you cannot, no one can collect for that, which is weird. Yeah, but I mean, but we can, we can all agree, like when someone's injured, I mean, that the emotional harm can be traumatizing as well. You know, like if a worker falls, you know, off of scaffolding, is in the hospital for months and all that, that, I mean, those things can cause a lot of trauma in a person as well, I would think. Yeah, I mean, we we may have talked about in the past, we had a worker that got backed up over by a utility truck on a public job on the turnpike. And he was uh, he was Portuguese. He took a lot of pride in the work that he did. He was he was uh, a mason, I believe. And that was like his identity was was doing masonry work. And he went and saw a psychologist. I mean, he got catastrophically injured in the, from a physical standpoint. He was in a coma. I think he had either like 36 or 42 broken bones or something like that. But on top of the physical injuries, his emotional injuries were he had like a total loss of identity because he couldn't do his job anymore. And he actually went and saw, I think it was, his, I don't remember if it was a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And in Portuguese, he told her he felt like a nolto. I think was the word, which translates to non-entity. Like he's just basically, I feel like a nothing. Like I used to go to work, I'd get my paycheck, I'd come home, I'd hand it to my wife. Not being able to do that, he's like, I just feel like like a nothing, like a non-entity. 
and I think slowly, very slowly, but hopefully with some progress, there's starting to be a little bit more value and a little bit more, I guess, recognition to how serious these psychological injuries can be. I think, and again, I guess we're going back to politics, but I remember hearing something that the current administration is thinking about, like having insurance expanded to cover things for, for mental health, because a lot of times it's like impossible to find a reasonably priced, you know, mental health professional. But meanwhile, you break a bone or something like that. There's 50,000 orthopedists lined up where it's a 15, 20, $30 copay. So I think slowly society is kind of getting there, but my experience has been a lot of these personal injury cases, the psychological harm is kind of like the, I don't want to call it like the gravy or the whipped cream, but whatever. It's like a topping onto the main course. And I think you'd asked her, I know Jerry started to give an example of something that's just so shocking to the, the that's a horrible choice of words, but something that's, you know, just, just kind of really gets to your conscience. And one of the few cases that I have had where it's been a heavy emphasis on psychological harm. And sometimes it's different whether you can bring a case for an emotional injury. There's different requirements. Like if you have to be in like the zone of danger where you could have gotten hurt, you have to have a certain relationship with the person who got injured. And case I had where that happened was it was like a routine, not routine, but it was a rear end collision on the Garden State Parkway. And this mom's in, in a car with her, I think it was her two daughters. And so she pulls over to look at the damage, you know, from the guy that hit her and the guy who hit her gets out of the car. He says, oh, it's not that bad. Don't call the police. And she's like, well, I need to call the police. I need to report it. Turns out the guy that hit her had like an outstanding warrant. It was a stolen car. So when she goes to get her information, she's like leaning into her car. This guy gets back into his car and peels off. And when he speeds away back onto the parkway, he hits this woman, sends her flying into the parkway. Her two kids are in the car, like screaming, banging on the window. The mom's like laying there. She broke her hip real bad. The mom's laying there, like stay in the car to her kids. And we brought that case. And it was like the emphasis was on the mom's broken hip. And then the kind of like whipped cream on top of that was, you know, the kids being in the car, seeing their mom just have gotten like run over by this guy and the mom being there like helpless as her kids are, are in the car. So it's kind of wild. It's just easier, I guess, to comprehend like a broken bone, you know, what that's like. Because a lot of times, especially with auto cases, there has to be like objective, credible medical evidence of a permanent injury, which like, what the heck does that mean when you're talking about a broken bone? But then when you're getting into just psychological injuries, when you're talking about objective, credible medical evidence of a psychological injury, I think that can get even more confusing for jurors. And I think insurance companies might be kind of keen to that, or at least think they're keen to that. But there's, there's ways around that. There's testing that can be done. But, you know. My kind of hope is that these psychological injuries do catch up with the physical injuries because they're they're very real. I mean, everything is just what your brain perceives. Like if you break your leg, it's not, you know, your leg that says you're in pain. It sends a signal to your brain. Your brain says your leg's in pain. So the same way if, you know, you have some trauma or, you know, something like the example of the mom getting hit by a car in front of her kids, like that's in your brain as well, just as real as your broken leg. So. And Mark, how old were the kids? Do you remember? I want to say like eight and 10, like they, it wasn't like they were way too young or, or way too old. I know that sounds kind of silly, but it's not like they were so young that they wouldn't have been able to process what was going on. It's not like they were old enough where they probably have some coping skills and ways to work through it. Like it was a 
pretty tough age where something like that is probably going to stick with them. I think it kind of indirectly factors in is that has like, I don't want to say an appeal, but it adds an element to the case that makes it a little bit riskier to put in front of a jury. Because if you're undervaluing the physical injury and the emotional component's going to come into it, I know Jerry mentioned like with wrongful death, you can't think about the suffering of the family. But in terms of like intentional infliction of emotional distress and things like that, if you're, if you meet some of the elements that I think I talked about before, you, you kind of can factor that in. So it just adds like a, a different variable to the case. But they were, they were young kids and we took their depositions and you could tell it like affected them a lot. They both did a really good job kind of communicating everything. Thanks. Final question for Jerry or Mark, whoever wants to take this one. In court, how do you guys bring up the the whole psychological thing when you're presenting a case in court to the jury? I think I would have to say about that. And it's kind of a, a strategy thing. So when it comes to talking about like psychological injuries in court in front of a jury, like if I stand up there and I say, I am so sad, I'm having such a tough time, you know, things are just really not going good for me. The jury might sit there and be a little suspicious. Like, well, of course you're saying that. Like, you have an incentive to say that. You you could be getting money. Like, why am I supposed to believe you? But if I were to, you know, say, hey, Dimple, what if, you know, let's call you to the stand. What have you seen about Mark? And you say, I've seen Mark. He seemed really down. He's really having a tough time. Then we bring in Jerry. And Jerry says, yeah, you know, Mark, he's just not the same. It seems like he's really having a tough time. And then I was to go up on the stand. The jury, I think, would be more sympathetic, more accepting of that. So I think that was a weird example of saying, like, putting up family members, friends, other people that could kind of talk about the psychological issues that they see, I think is helpful. And then there's specific, you know, areas of medicine where you could have an expert that does, you know, be it like neuropsychological testing, something that can kind of measure some of the brain things that are going on. I think having an expert when it calls for it, and I think family and friends is really helpful to kind of help paint that picture. Jerry, any thoughts before you have to jump out of here? No, I think Mark covered it pretty good, although I do have the scene picture from that other case I was telling you about. Oh, yeah, share your screen. We'd love to see that. All right. So I was telling you, I was explaining about the, the construction case. You were asking about, like, emotional damages and, you know. So anyway, I was telling about that, that case with the, the two scaffolding poles. So I was telling about that case where the scaffolding poles came in contact with the pole. So we have it here in a picture, the one scaffolding pole. So you can see the pole here is attached to the top of the roof. And the other one was attached here and it, and it fell and hit this line up here. And this is the, sef- the second scaffolding pole here. And again, like we talked about, that pole was taken down the exact same, same way after the incident. So that's what I want to show you. Yeah, the the power still wasn't shut off. Wow. Putting the siding on. And here you can see the scaffolding poles. These are part of the official police record. And this is the pole here that killed the worker to the left of the pole. And the second pole is here. And after all this happened, they still did nothing by way of safety rules. They didn't contact the utility company to have the power shut down. And then the workers went ahead and took down the second pole, doing the same thing they did before. This is based on testimony of that we got, got today in the case. And then we actually asked the general contractor, which is up here, 
we were basically asking him, why aren't you following the OSHA safety rules on the job? And the question was, it's up here. It says, if it's not about the money, I said, isn't it true you're not following safety rules because it saves money and it makes the job go faster and you can undercut the competition? He denied that. So I said, I asked him, I said, question, if it's not about the money, what is the reason you're not following the safety rules? Answer. And by the way, you should know that these safety rules are meant to protect not only the workers, but anyone else that comes near the job site, like the homeowner while their house is being built. Maybe they want to bring their kids on, take a look at it. People walking by, people that work for the town, inspectors, neighbors, anything. These safety rules also protect everyone, not just employees, a a anyone that comes near a construction site. So question, if it's not about money, what's the reason you're not following the safety rules? And the contractor testified, the general contractor testified, because the contractors are just, it's in a different world. They're all from a foreign world and they're all, they're all Spanish guys. They come up here, but I have nothing against them. I have a lot of Spanish friends. So we thought that that was important testimony to get as to explaining this whole situation. Yeah, that's crazy. That is crazy. Well, thanks for sharing all that, Jerry. All right. So, Dimple, we talk about a lot of these cases and how a lot of times the idea is to try and get people as much compensation as, as possible. But sometimes, and my dad likes loves this aspect, what we do is sometimes it makes people change things that they're doing and, and make things safer. And a case we've talked about a lot is the guy that got backed up over on the turnpike. And the allegation in the case was the truck should have had a backup alarm, a backup camera. And they said, no, 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 it doesn't. We won that case. We got that worker millions of dollars. And now every single vehicle associated with that company has a backup alarm on it, be it like a Toyota Prius, a Camry, whatever. My friend sent me a video of one of those cars backing up. And it's beep, beep, beep. It's a little tiny thing. So that's a situation where we made a real difference and we made a company do things safer and hopefully protected other workers and members of the public from getting seriously injured or, or even killed. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's really important information. So thank you. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I guess that's a wrap, you guys. We'll see you on the next episode. And there you have it, folks. Another episode of Jersey Justice Podcast. If you're loving what you're hearing, it's time to hit that subscribe button on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review online. Share this podcast with your friends and become their legal hero. Dive into more episodes at jerseyjusticepodcast.com or clarklawnj.com and check out our show notes for more information. If you're navigating legal issues and need a guiding light, we're just a phone call away. Call us at 1-877-841-8855. Again, 1-877-841-8855. Until next time, Jersey Justice Warriors, stay empowered and informed.